And now for something completely different. Forget everything you've been told by others before. Get ready for the real deal. The full story. Real talk about money, markets, life. Now, it's The Real Investment Show with Lance Roberts. Presented by RIA Advisors. And good morning and welcome to The Real Investment Show. Yes, we're live. Uh, we did survive the freeze here. And of course, uh, I'm glad you're back with us today. So, uh, you know, always want to be a little bit cautious, you know, when there's a lot of ice on the roads and want to jeopardize Brent and his little Mazda Miata that's on the freeways. Just not really worth it. Um, you know, the, the, the new generation, these, these kids these days, you know, they're always inventing something new. Uh, so, have you heard about this new thing called Scrawlish? Have you? It's a, this Scrawlish? Scrawlish. It's a new way to write. Oh. So, yeah, it uses a set of symbols to represent letters. So, a symbol can represent a, a letter or a sound. And, mm -hmm. and that way you can theoretically write faster, right? Take notes. And right? it's legible. No, it's not legible. It's symbols. So, if you don't oh. know how to read it, you're not going to understand it. So, this is the whole point about Scrawlish, right? So, this so, is not like the Palm Pilot code. No, no, not at all. But, ah. this is, but this is the funny thing, right? So, they've gone to all this effort to create this new kind of language, right? Scrawl. This, this, right, this thing called Scrawlish, right? And it's very <laughs> cool looking on paper and nobody can read it. So, it's good. But it's also called Shorthand. We... <laughs> We developed that like 50 years ago <laughs> to take stuff. So, you know, you didn't want to learn cursive. You didn't want to learn shorthand in school. So now you come up with a new thing, kids these days. Anyway, <laughs> so, you know, it is funny, though. It, 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 it is interesting because, you know, it's like I was watching my, my uh, daughter the other day, and, and uh, she was typing on her laptop, and she's hunting and pecking. With two fingers? Oh, there's two fingers yeah. on her laptop. Yeah. And I go, didn't you take typing in school? And she goes, no, they don't teach typing anymore. And I did not know this, right? They don't teach typing in school anymore, at least that I'm aware of, right? According to her, my daughter, and of course, she's not the best source <laughs> of information, but <laughs> things get a little dramatic. Uh, so, but she says they don't teach typing anymore. It's not an elective. And I'm like, okay, in a world where we're all going to computers, shouldn't typing be like the main requirement of school? You would think. You would think. But no, she was even telling me like most of her friends hunt and peck. And, you know, this is interesting because, you know, if you learn to type, you use all your fingers and you're a lot faster at it. So... <laughs> The dumbing down of society. I, I don't know. But I, I guess somebody just said, ah, we don't, need, we don't have typewriters anymore. We all type now. Well, they did update the class at one time and called it keyboarding. Well, this is true. What a concept. They did, but apparently they've got rid of that. Now it's just a class called thumbs. <laughs> so, and yeah. they can, they, they, they are thumb critics. Mm -hmm. Let me tell you what, they, yeah, they can criticize you quickly with your thumbs. Anyway, uh, so uh, yeah, lots of deep freeze here over the last couple of days. Here's the interesting thing though. Um, this will have an impact on economic data. And, you know, one of the things that we kind of keep talking about is, you know, what's going on with the economy, et cetera. And of course, a lot of people were shut in. And not, not surprising, um, if, you if you were kind of watching social media, on sa Saturday and Sunday, uh, there was a picture from HEB. So if you don't live in, in Texas, right, you're not familiar with HEB, but HEB is like one of our big grocery stores. It's kind of like a Randall's or a Safeway or an Albertson's. 
Um, but anyway, showing <laughs> the guy had gone into HEB to get groceries ahead of the freeze and most everything was sold out. So <laughs> I was there yesterday. The entire shelf, three tall, uh-huh. from one end to the other, where the toilet paper used to be. Yeah. I mean, yeah. blank. Yeah. What is it about freezes and toilet paper? <laughs> I don't know. Everybody, everybody's afraid that you're going to run out of toilet paper Ooh, doing free. Oh, boy. <laughs> That's what they make snow for. So, anyway. <laughs> anyway. So, yeah. But, a lot of, but this is going to be an impact on economic data, right? So, everybody went out and spent a bunch of money stocking up on toilet paper and, and other things. Um, it was also interesting, though, at, at HEB, of course, you know you live in Texas when two things happen, right? And then we saw this during COVID, right? So during the COVID shutdown, everybody would panic, went out and bought everything. And, you know, everything was empty out of the stores except for the vegan aisle. There was plenty of food. All the Beyond Meat was, was there in the vegan aisle. But you know you live in Texas when you go to HEB and there's unsweetened tea but no sweet tea. True that. Right? Yep. If you don't know sweet tea, you don't know Texas. But yeah, HEB completely sold out of sweet tea, according to this video. <laughs> but there was plenty of unsweetened. You could get that. So, <laughs> so anyway, but that's good. So the point is, is that's going to lead to a pickup in economic activity. So we're going to see potentially a little spike in retail sales. Also, utility. Uh, usage is going to spike. So we're going to see a pickup there in terms of, you know, the, the amount of money spent on utilities, natural gas, etc. So again, you know, there's these things that happen economically that will sustain some economic activity. And the timing of this was, you know, uh, kind of nice because if you're, you know, we'd already kind of see a little bit of weakening in the economic data. So this is going to add a little bit of juice not a lot. I mean, it's only a couple of days, but that's going to add some some juice back to the economic data. So again, just you know, weather weather matters, and it's going to make kind of predicting the next quarter of economic activity a little bit more difficult for economists. Uh, so we're going to see a little bit of variation of that. Okay. Um, now, what do you need to know before the bell this morning? We got a little bit to catch up on since last week, and, and I know we're out. I apologize. hope you've been watching our daily commentary that's been uh, out on the website. We updated that yesterday. But the market uh, continuing to basically not do a whole lot. <laughs> we just kind of remain trapped in this consolidation range that we've now been in for really since mid-December. Markets haven't really made much of an advance here. Continuing to work off that overbought condition, we're about halfway through that process. Have a little bit more to go, but you know the, this kind of churning action of the market is, is keeping that from happening more rapidly. Again, if the market's just sold off, we would get oversold very quickly. But because of this kind of back and forth of the market, it's, it's, it's causing this uh, reduction in that overbought relative strength index to take a little bit more time to get to an oversold condition. Uh, we remain in a MACD sell signal as well. We're working through that process as well. We are approaching zero and that's, you know, we're, we're again about halfway through that process as well. So again, the market's doing fine. There's nothing really wrong here. Uh, interestingly enough, the trades that were wrapping up the end of last year, small cap, mid cap, international emerging markets, uh, those have all kind of given up the ghost. Uh, you know, small caps have come under a good bit of pressure here lately. 
Um, we're also seeing a rotation from the last year, you know, the, the last two months of the year had some good winners going on and uh, kind of some of the beaten down sectors. And a lot of that was just repositioning for the end of the year. Um, those have all come under pressure. You know, the, the big winners of the last, you know, couple of days in particular have been NVIDIA. Uh, AMD was up like 8% yesterday. So seeing money go right back into that previous Magnificent 7 trade from earlier last year, the question is, are we going to kind of repeat that all over again, where it's just a very narrow market advance with a lot of stocks lagging? We'll see. It's a little too early to tell, but we are starting to see some of that rotation and particularly we saw this last week, that consolidation back into that mega cap growth trade has certainly picked up some steam. But again, markets are holding here above the 20 day moving average. Not a lot of risk here at the moment. Uh, we have a good bit of stock, uh, uh, the percentage of uh, stocks above the 200 and the 50 day moving average remain fairly high. So again, there's not a lot of risk of a big downside move here currently. But again, this market's just kind of not going anywhere until we get kind of some of these conditions overbought. This morning, futures are pointing lower. Uh, we've seen this over the last couple of days, but markets have rallied back by the end of the day. We'll see if that happens again. As And again, we're right in the middle of earnings season. We're going to talk some more about that uh, coming up on today's show. But that's what you need to know before the bell this morning. Um, when we come back, we will talk a little bit about earnings getting underway this week. We started with the banks on Friday, but we're now starting to see more and more uh, stocks coming in. Starting next week, it gets real busy. So we'll talk a little bit about what to expect when we come back right here on The Real Investment Show. Get daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. Talk a little bit about earnings quarter four season. Uh, so now it's I know it's January of 2024, but we're now starting to report the earnings from quarter four of last year. So that has uh, gotten underway on Friday. Um, we had JP Morgan, Morgan Stanley, a couple other big banks report. Um, right now, they're starting to trickle in here a bit. And, you know, we'll, uh, we've got Char um, Charles Schwab today, Alcoa, Discover, U.S. Bank Corp, Kinder Morgan, uh, Citizens Financial Group, Prologis, few others. So, so again, they're starting to trickle in. Now, next week, earnings are going to get really busy. We'll get into uh, really uh, over the next probably two weeks, we'll have about 80% of the S&P 500 will kind of report. So there'll be a, a big flurry of earnings as we start getting into next week. Um, but, you know, nonetheless, you know, when we take a look at you know, earnings and think about where we are. And, and this, uh, I put this article out yesterday, so um, I've got some charts this morning that we'll go through here real quick. But um, if you want to get access to the article, just go to the website, Real Investment Advice. And while you're there, make sure and, and uh, get your ticket for the upcoming economic summit, on which is not this Saturday, but next Saturday. It's coming up pretty quick. So, um, but talking about quarter four earnings, um, you know, we always go through this and we, we every, you know, every quarter we call this it's millennial earnings season because everybody gets a trophy. Why? It's because we cut estimates to the point that, you know, companies can beat the number. And, you know, it's, it's interesting, if, you know, if you went to your, <laughs> to your doctor, right, and your doctor said, well, you, 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 you're healthy. Right. So eight months ago, he said, oh, you're completely healthy. And you go back, you go back every month and every month he says, yeah, you look healthy. Well, you're not quite as healthy as you were last month, but you're still healthy. And, you know, 
every month is going along, it's just the prognosis is getting worse and worse. And, and finally, it's just like, you couldn't have told me eight months ago that there was a problem here, right? It just it took this long to get it. And this is the way it is with analysts. You know, why we put any faith in analysts at all is surprising because their job is not to provide you good information. It's to support the stocks they do investment banking with. But nonetheless, we have these analysts come out and say, oh, these are what we expect earnings to be. Well, um, and let, let me just show you a good example of this. So, so here's the chart of quarter four estimates. So we started putting out estimates for the fourth quarter of this uh, of 2023 in February of 2022. So in February 2022, analysts said, oh, yeah, earnings are going to be $236 a share at the end of, of next year. Right. Okay. Fantastic. Since then, they've done nothing but just ratchet those down. Um, every month, they just get lower and lower and lower and lower. And, and, over, and interestingly, earnings fell by $8 a share between November and December. So a very rapid cut to earnings as we wrapped up quarter four. I mean, even going into quarter four in October, they were more optimistic about the actual earnings numbers. And we're, we're into the quarter, right? I mean, you should, you're three months out from a company reporting. You should have a much better idea of what that company is doing than have to come back and slash your estimates by $8 over the course of three months, right? I mean, just... But nonetheless, this is where we are. So we, we wrapped up with estimates as of January the 1st, 2024. The, the estimates for quarter four were at 192. Now that's down from $234 a share when they first started. So huge decline in this earnings. And of course, this is why, you know, when we, we do this uh, and we have these millennial earnings season, everybody's going to get a trophy, right? We're, this is why. There's and you hear there's every quarter is like, oh, well, you know, we had 80 percent of companies beat estimates this quarter. And it's, it's a great quarter, man. Earnings just came, you know, earnings, you know, companies came in and slammed earnings. You know, that's because analysts are just that wrong always. And again, why do we why do we, you know, trust it? I mean, you know, you should have if analysts were good at their job. Right. And they were actually talking to these companies and doing what they say they're doing. And actually providing information that was worthwhile, you would have you would not have a very high beat rate. Your beat rate should be ten percent, because ninety percent of companies are meeting the estimates that you laid out, right? So you have a ten percent beat rate. When you have an 85 percent beat rate, can you show this chart? When you have an 85 percent beat rate, you know on stocks, it just tells you how how bad you are. But on average, we average about a seventy to seventy five percent beat rate. By companies over history, and you know this is to, this, what this is saying is that analysts are wrong seventy five percent of the time. <laughs> so, you know that's you know there, there was a, there's a great statistician. He's a comedian. He's like one in five children in the world are Chinese. That means that if you have four kids and you're going to have a fifth child, the odds are it's going to be Chinese. Right. So this is the problem with statistics. Right. You know, you this is the problem with Wall Street analysts. Right. Statistically, they cannot be this wrong all the time. So that means it has to be done. Intentionally, you cannot be this wrong all the time. So this has to be intentional. So just remember about that. 
So we've cut estimates now as we go into earnings, and this is going to lead to a very high beat rate. But again, this thing about cutting estimates has already started for 2024 as well, right? Uh, just since we had the initial estimates for 2024, estimates for 2024 have already been cut by $10 a share as of January the 1st. So already their estimates for 2024 are coming down, despite the fact that they're saying, oh, everything's great. The economy's awesome. We're going to avoid a hard landing. It's going to be fantastic. We're going to have growth. We're going to cut rates. It's all great. We're already slashing earnings again. All right, so we're already setting up the next year. But here's the problem with, with all this is that if we take a look at earnings growth as, a, as currently expected, and this is going to be one of the big issues, Estimates for 2024 are now hugely deviated. Now, if we go back through history, earnings kind of grow peak to peak at 6% on average. The troughs run about 5%, trough to trough on average. And so you can take a look at over time as the economy, and this makes sense, right? As the economy grows, um, earnings are going to, to grow with the economy. But Currently, the growth trend of earnings is well deviated above what the long-term average growth trend is. So you're going to get, and, and, and throughout history, you get reversions in earnings for one reason. And these reversions, of course, happen during economic recessions, slowdowns, et cetera. And you can kind of see that drop in earnings that occurred during 2020. And the only reason that we did not have a bigger reversion in earnings in 2020 was because we came in with $5 trillion worth of checks to households, shut down the economy, had no had the supply-demand imbalance, but we fueled households to start buying stuff, and companies could charge more for those products, so earnings just went through the roof. And so we saw this recovery in earnings starting um, in 2022, right? So we we had this, this brief decline in earnings that have turned around because of all that stimulus. Now, the question we have to ask ourselves is, is we are ex-stimulus, but we're, we're cutting earnings now, right, to beat these estimates. But the question is, is, you know, at some point, we're going to have to mean revert earnings back to what the economy can actually generate. That's because that's where earnings come from. Earnings come from economic activity, economic growth. Same thing for corporate profits. If we take a look at GDP, you know, over time, you know, we had that huge spike in GDP, and that led to the, to a surge post-COVID in corporate profitability, and that continues now. You know, but the issue is is that the S and P index is priced well ahead of what corporate profits are. And normally when you have big deviations from corporate profitability, you have a, a, a correction at some point. And that's because the economy cannot generate profits or earnings fast enough to keep up with what people are paying for asset prices. So again, you, you have this deviation that at some point is going to have to rectify itself. And this is, this, is a, this is a valuation problem. We talk about this all the time. But... You know, it's just a function of where we are. And and because we have changed the underlying dynamic of the markets over the last decade, this is probably going to last longer than you expect. But eventually, at some point, you're going to have this reversion to the mean only because, you know, the question becomes is, is where's all the spending going to come from next? Right. We spent forty three trillion dollars supporting economic activity over the last 13 years. So the question is, is what are you going to do over the next 13, right? What are you going to do for me now? It becomes the next question. 
And if we take a look at M2 as a percentage of GDP now, so M2 is basically the money supply in the system. Um, we compare that as a percentage of the overall GDP of economic activity. You can see that huge spike that we did during COVID, right? It's just, it's just so far beyond any type of, of rationale. So we're going through this process now of correcting that monetary supply. But importantly, look back at that red line. Um, and, and again, if you're driving right now, don't try to look at your phone, but you just, just go pull that. You can just get this article on the website. Quarter for earnings season gets underway. Um, and, and you can take a look at the chart. But importantly, note that the M2 as a percentage of GDP started to escalate at a 45 degree angle post 2000. So this is this is a phenomenon of this surge in monetary activity post 1999. And then it just kind of skyrocketed during the COVID shutdown. Now, we're, we're in the process of reverting that, right? And a lot of that money is still in the system as a percentage of GDP. So as that monetary supply comes out of the economy, the economy is going to slow down. Just not enough to support it. I'll come back and wrap this conversation up after the break. Don't go away. Be sure you get by the website, realinvestmentadvice.com. Get your tickets for the upcoming Economic Summit, weekend after next, on the website now. The Real Investment Advice blog. It's required reading for the informed investor. Catch it today at realinvestmentadvice.com. Looking for clarity for your investments in the new year? You must attend our 2024 Economic Summit, Navigating Markets in a Presidential Cycle, featuring Greg Valier. Trump will be a big presence. The bigger story, in my opinion, is how weak Joe Biden is going to be. Is the Fed finished tightening? Liquidity, I think, is underestimated. Will rates ease this summer? States are still flush with cash. They haven't spent all their money from the pandemic relief bill. How will the election affect your investments? I don't see any political figure right now who can bring the country conclusively back together again. Register now for our 2024 Economic Summit, Navigating Markets in a Presidential Cycle, featuring Greg Valier with special guest Adam Taggart, plus Michael Lebowitz and Lance Roberts, Saturday, January 27th at the Hotel Celeste Houston. Navigating Markets in a Presidential Cycle, featuring Greg Valier, Saturday, January 27th at the Hotel Celeste Houston. Registration open now at realinvestmentadvice.com, realinvestmentadvice.com. So welcome back to the show this morning, of course. It is um, Wednesday. It's hump day already. Talk a little bit about earnings quarter four as we get ready to kick things off. I want to go back to this chart real quick. Uh, we were just talking about just before the break, which is this M2 as a percentage of GDP as compared to GDP. And I, I, I want to, the reason this is important is I want to change this into a liquidity measure, right? I'm going to use the same data and turn, and again, what we're talking about is how much money is there, you know, monetary supply is there in the economy. So I can, I can convert this into a measure of liquidity by subtracting GDP from M2, right? So if I do that, I get a different look here, which is basically the contraction of M2. So we're going through this whole issue of contracting this liquidity from the markets. And not surprisingly, there is a fairly high correlation historically between this liquidity measure and the market. It runs with a bit of a lag, but we see this. Now, the market's been rallying here over the last you know year. We had 22% advance last year. 
It's great. Nothing wrong with that. But that's occurring as liquidity is draining from the system. So this is going to potentially put pressure. Now, unless this changes, right, unless we start injecting more liquidity into the system and, and you know, the, the Fed cuts rates and we start doing a lot of QE and we start printing some more money, et cetera, then, you know, this will change, right? We'll start to see the money supply grow again and we'll see liquidity turn up, which would support the economic activity. Or we're going to see the opposite, which is, the market comes to reflect the amount of money and, and monetary liquidity that's in the system. Um, you know, the, the problem that we have, of course, as always, is that, and I shouldn't say as, as, as always, because we haven't always had this problem, but we've had this problem over the last 10 years in particular, is valuations. And, you know, when we take a look at valuations, we take a look at, you know, what's going on. And, of course, we have two measures of, of valuations. We have gap earnings, which are, actual reported earnings generally accepted accounting principles that's reported earnings that's that follows the accounting rules that's what companies actually make then we have operating earnings which are operating earnings less all the bs right so in anything that may subtract from earnings we we don't even count that this this is operating earnings are this is how i would like earnings to be in a magical world of unicorns and fairies where absolutely nothing goes wrong right you should never use operating earnings for any measure of managing your portfolio, ever. You should only look at reported trailing earnings. That's all that matters. But nonetheless, we have to take a look at both because they're out there. But valuations right now on an operating basis, so operating earnings, again, operating earnings, less all the BS, are still trading at 21 times earnings. Reported earnings are at 24 times earnings. So again, you just have a big gap between what's going on between operating and reported earnings. And that gap normally doesn't persist long. Um, it can stay that way for a while, but on with regularity, earnings will contract and they, and they are going to meet at some point on this valuation base. In other words, you're going to have this valuation reversion. Um, and that's just going to occur. And, and again, what causes that to occur is, is always hard to tell. But... You know, when we take a look at the gap between operating earnings and gap earnings that we have right now, that is exceedingly high. That deviation, there's a big gap between operating and reported earnings. So, again, that that's going to have to close at some point. Either operating earnings are going to stay where they are and, and reported earnings will catch up or vice versa. But there's going to be a, a correction of some sort coming. And generally that's going to occur during either a recessionary contraction within the economy, or at least just a, a significant slowdown in economic growth, and you get a valuation reversion. And, and again, it's just, that's how markets work over time. And if we take a look at, at long-term kind of measures of the markets, whoops, I lost my chart, one second. Um, there's, you know, we can take a look at valuation ranges historically, and, and again, We've been running a very deviated market really ever since 2008. When we came in and started all, you know, $43 trillion worth of liquidity injections of QE and this and that and the other thing, we've just been running a market for 13 years now. And again, there's a lot of investors that have never seen a, a real bear market. They just never, you know, have, have been through that. Um, but we've been running a market that remains extremely overvalued relative to historical normal ranges of valuations. And so at some point, you're going to get a mean reverting event that is going to correct this overvaluation issue just because simply the market and the economy are not detached from each other. They operate earnings 
come from economic activity and the revenues that are generated from economic activity, right? So again, you can continue to overpay for stuff for a while because you're getting, you know, you have zero rates, you can do lots of leverage, those type of things. But, you know, eventually at some point, the rubber meets the road. Now, the, the problem is, is that we've seen over 13 years, it can stay this way for a very long time. But at some point, whether it's five years from now or 10 years from now, and again, these, these secular periods in the markets can last a lot longer than you think, right? But you're going to go through a period where you'll have this mean reversion. Now, that doesn't mean the markets crash and everything goes to zero and is a complete disaster. But what it means is, is that you're going to go through a subsequent period of 10 to 20 years where markets return zero-ish and valuations catch up to reality. And again, you can go back through history and see this, right? Um, you know, after the the run up from 1900 to basically 1929, the markets went sideways for about 20 years. Then from the then post World War II to the 19 early 1960s, the markets had this huge bull market, and then we went nowhere in the 1960s and 70s. I actually had a negative 10 percent return after 20 years. And you worked off those valuations. Valuation about five times earnings coming out of that period. Then from 1980-ish through 2000, you had 15% average annualized return during that secular bull market. And then you went nowhere for 17 years. So we've done 13 years now of this advance. And again, it can stay this way for another five, seven, 10 years. But then you're going to go through a period of returns that are going to be disappointing. And that's just the way markets work. These secular bull, secular bear periods are all based on valuations and what the, econ the economy can actually generate. And with the amount of debt and leverage that we're putting on, it just suggests that we're eventually going to have to go through this kind of reversion period at some point. That that's gonna, Now, again, I'm not trying to be bearish, but I'm just saying this is kind of reality, is that you, know, you don't know when this is going to occur. You don't know how this is going to occur. You don't know what's going to cause it to occur. We just know that these secular periods occur with regularity throughout history. You know, and it's always interesting, too, and, and this, is, this is one of the great fallacies of financial media and financial advisors around the world, is they tell you, oh, just put your money in the market, and over time you're getting 8% a year. Well, the problem with that statement is 100% of the market gains have occurred in four periods, five periods now. The other four periods had zero rates of return. So it all depends on, A, your lifespan, how long you have, and where you start. If you happen to start in one of those periods where you have 20 years of zero returns, you didn't do well. If you happen to be lucky enough to start your investing journey in 2009, you have 13 years of a great advance but we're going to go through a period where it's not going to be so great. But when you look at it from the fact that 100% of the returns of the market came from five distinct periods, you just happen to be in one of those periods right now. As opposed to 2000 through 2017, where that period kind of sucked, right? You had some, some nice advances, but you, know, you also wound up giving them up twice. So again, it's just, it's important to measure anyway. 
this information is all on the, on the website. So if you go to um, the website, realinvestmentadvice.com, and just click on yesterday's article on Q4 earnings, you can see all those charts and kind of do the analysis yourself if you want. Um, so getting ready to kind of wrap things up, uh, you know, it's interesting right now. You're, what you're going to see over the next couple of days on CNBC and everything else is all these CEOs and politicians from around the world. They're at the World Economic Forum right in Davos. This is led by Klaus Schwab, um, who is the head of the WEF and, of course, the big promoter of, of the global dominance movement where basically the elites control everything. And it's interesting. They all flew in on private jets, et cetera, to talk about how to control the world and the importance of climate change and all these type of things. And of course, while they're there at this big confab doing that, this year's theme I thought was interesting. It's called rebuilding trust because what they figured out was is from last year to this year, they lost a lot of trust in some of the things that they've been doing, particularly revolving around the COVID pandemic. And now that all that nonsense is coming out, um, they figured out that they've lost a lot of credibility. So now this year's theme is how to rebuild that. But in the same process of that, you cannot find a hooker anywhere in Davos. Uh, there is a website called T4T, which is how you can book your escort for the week of Davos, and they are completely sold out. Um, so again, it's kind of like a Baptist convention in Houston. Can't find alcohol anywhere. <laughs> I'm Baptist. I can say that. <laughs> anyway. You have to make jokes at these people. I mean, come on. Yeah. They're controlling the world and they're all up there hating on Twitter. They they despise Twitter. And Elon, Elon Musk, the hero of the left when he was building EVs. Now, the, he is now declared to be evil. Elon Musk is now evil along with X. Free speech is a bitch. Anyway, all right. Be right back after the break. Don't go away. daily investment news you can use delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com now when you're as old as brent and i are we remember the days where you had a bank account and if you wanted checks you had to pay for checks if you wanted uh you know any type of service from the bank, you had to pay for that. And that's how banks made money. And this is before we deregulated the banks and allowed the banks to get back into the brokerage industry and start basically making money hand over fist through proprietary trading, et cetera. And that led to the, and, and when banks could offset those fees with other revenue streams, and this is why when you take a look at you know, bank earnings, which we're in the process of right now. Take a look at bank earnings. And, and this I'm talking about the big banks, right? I'm talking about J.P. Morgan, Wells, you know, Wells Fargo, Bank of America, et cetera. Um, you take a look at like Bank of America, J.P. Morgan, take a look at their revenue mix. It's primarily trading, investments, those type of things that are making their revenue. 
retail retail banking is a write-off for the most part. But it's interesting because uh, the Biden administration is coming out. The uh, Consumer uh, Protection Bureau that they set up is coming out with new proposals to change how banks charge customers. And it's interesting because, you know, these these all sound like a great idea. They're terrible ideas. Since 2000, I'm gonna read, let me just read to you this little, this, uh, little sentence here from CNBC. Since 2000, American consumers have paid an estimated $280 billion in bank overdraft fees, according to CFPB. During that time, the annual revenue of big banks derived from overdraft fees soared, helping the boom, uh, helping along the boom in consumer debit cards tied directly to checking accounts. So, look, this is something Brent and I and every every other Gen Xer grew up with, and baby boomer grew up with. You have so much money in the bank, you spend too much money, you write a check. You can, as my dad says, you write a check, your butt can't cash. You're gonna have to pay a fee, right? There's a penalty, and and guess what happens? You you pay that twenty five thirty bucks. And guess what you do the next time? You're a little bit more careful about writing that overdraft, right? So it's a penalty, and yes, it's a fee, and it's the price of doing business, right? If I've got advance, you, if you come to me, I do hard money lending, right? You want to come to me and borrow money? I'll loan it to you, but the VIG is pretty high, right? And the collateral is steep. So that's the reality of life. Right. Those with the money make the rules. Right. But in today's society, right, we have to be doing we, we have to protect the, the individuals. Right. And instead of teaching them financial responsibility, let them suffer with the penalty. We got to do this. But that's OK. We have a solution for this. And I'm going to tell you why this is a terrible, terrible idea. Here's a quote from uh, Joe Biden. For too long, some banks have charged exorbitant overdraft fees, sometimes thirty dollars. That often hit the most vulnerable Americans the hardest. Well, yeah, of course, the people that are getting hit with overdraft fees are those that are living paycheck to paycheck, which is about 80, 90 percent of Americans. Is what it is. Banks call it service. I call it exploitation, according to Joe Biden. Okay, so the new regulations are going to apply to banks with more than 10 billion in assets. It's about 175 institutions. And taking into account these banks make uh, are about 80 percent of the overdraft fees charged. That's because most Americans have, you know, Five banks make up 60% of our banking system. <laughs> it's not hard to get there. Um, so the new the new proposal, right, is to now have a credit line. So what they're trying to propose is, is that when you open a checking account with a bank, you they will now you now have to also apply for a credit line to protect you against the overdraft. Now, here's the problem with that. And that sounds like a good deal on surface, right? So it's basically overdraft protection. And, and basically, you can get this at the bank all the time. I have it on my checking account. I'm not that overdraft. But if I happen to overdraft, I have overdraft protection. There's no charges. And I have to just pay it off by the end of the month. It's just there, right? Here's the problem with this new idea. Under this option, the large banks would offer overdraft loans for profit. Provided the banks treat the funds they advance as credit line loans. Okay, so great. I can provide you a loan that, that I charge you 6 7% on. Now, let's think about the math here for just a second, right? I overdraft a check. I pay $25, $30, whatever, one time, and I'm done, right? It's finished. I, I, I get myself back on track. I get my paycheck in. I pay the overdraft fee. 
And I just don't do that again. Here's the problem with these overdraft lines. It's easy to just keep the credit line, right? So now I'm negative on my account. I, this is like buy now, pay later, right? This whole other issue we've got going on with that, that type of loans. But now consumers get into this credit line. And let's say, the you know depending on the size of the credit line, whatever it is, but now I'm paying a monthly fee on the credit line. So that's going to wind up potentially costing me way more at some point, depending on how long I'm staying in this credit line overdraft situation, than a $25 fee. You know? So, you know, if I'm charging 7%, I'm overdraft 100 bucks at $7. It doesn't, if I'm, if I'm overdrafted for 100 bucks for five months, I'm at 35 bucks. Then I'm, then I would have been better off just paying the $35 fee, right? It's it just going to, it just compounds the situation. It sounds great in theory, and the banks are going to go, yeah, this is fine. <laughs> We're going to give everybody a $1,000 credit loan or, you know, whatever it is, because they're going to figure out a way to make money on this. And, and this is always the problem with these solutions that remove responsibility from the consumer. It winds up costing the consumer more every single time. Every time we try to fix something in the system, it winds up making the, the people in the middle class and the poor even poorer. Because the banks are going to figure out how to game this. I'll just read to you a little bit more here. For example, consumers would apply for a credit, and institutions would underwrite that to determine the consumer's ability to pay. So now the, now the bank's got to take on a bunch of people with poor credit. Now they've got to underwrite that credit line. Here's the other problem with that. You've got really crappy credit. You're a terrible, you're a terrible payer. You're always in financial trouble. And, and I'm not saying you in particular, but there's a lot of people that are consistently in financial trouble. My daughter is one of those. <laughs> I'm just teasing, not really. But the point is, what happens when the bank says, yeah, you have to go somewhere else. We don't want you. See, the more, when, you know, what these proposals do is give more control to the banks to select what customers or consumers they want to deal with. Eventually, you start putting enough pressure on the banks. The banks are going to start saying, yeah, we're going to have credit restrictions on the type of customers we bring in. I'm not discriminating on race, religion, anything else. You're just a bad credit. I don't want you as a customer. No shirt, no shoes, no service. Right now, we don't have that problem. You can pretty Anybody can pretty much open a checking account because the bank says, that's fine. Open a checking account. That's no problem. You overdrafted. I'm going to charge you 30 bucks. If I've got to start giving you credit and I have to underwrite that credit and that credit is on my books... See, just, just charging you an overdraft fee is fine, but once I have got to extend you credit, now that 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 debt is sitting on my books. Those those credit lines are sitting on my books. It's now a liability. So we'll see. We'll see what happens. But normally when the, we have these proposals, these these type of ideas, and they all sound great in theory, it's like, oh, we're gonna protect the little guy. 
it doesn't really work out that way and winds up making things cost more or remove services from the general public altogether. And this is going to be, and, and it turns out to be something that we shouldn't have done. You know, there's an old saying, like, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. <laughs> there's some things that have been around for 50 years, 60 years, 70 years, 100 years. Don't fix them. They've worked. They still work. Leave them alone. But, again, this is election season, so, you know, we got to do stuff that uh, says we're going to protect the little guy here. But, again, I have a feeling that we're going to look back at this. Um, if, the, if these rules – now, this is just proposal right now, right? These rules haven't passed. But if these rules pass, it'll be very interesting to look back at this conversation, you know, two, three, four, five years from now and see how this turns out. <laughs> We've done these things before. Generally, they don't turn out well. and But we keep trying. We keep trying. Uh, okay. Wrapping up the show this morning. Futures down about 111 on the Dow right now. So, you know, uh, S&P's down. Uh, sorry, NASDAQ's down about 61. S&P's down 20-ish at the moment. So we're going to have a little bit of a slow open this morning. We'll see if the markets can kind of stabilize at the open and recover. And, again, just this, uh, you know, this – you know, we we failed the, the Christmas rally, the Santa Claus rally. We failed the first five-day rally. We're halfway through the month, and we need to get this market needs to get its act together if we're going to salvage the, the month of January, uh, which kind of sets the tone for the year. So, again, we'll see what happens. But, uh, again, this morning a little bit sloppy. Be sure you're by the website, willinvestmentadvice.com. Get our latest blog post out. Michael's new uh, po- podcast uh, blog post is out as well this morning. Uh, We'll discuss it tomorrow, which is the 1970s and inflation. It's a three-part series that he started today on the website as well, realinvestmentadvice.com. And don't forget to get your ticket for the upcoming Economic Summit. It's next Saturday, not this Saturday, but next Saturday here in Houston at the Sinesta Hotel. Uh, Greg Valliere, myself, Adam Taggart, Michael Leibowitz will be spending the morning with you talking about markets, investing, how this presidential election year will turn out. It's all next uh, Saturday the 27th from 8 to noon. Tickets are on the website now. They are going pretty quick. So make sure and get your ticket now online, realinvestmentadvice.com.